want to invite you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to pl- please turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And I want to ask if you are able to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Reading Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, Father, as we turn to your word tonight, as we seek to worship you through it, as we seek to be blessed uh, through your word, your God, Father, we ask that you would give us the grace needed. Father, we ask that you would give us the help and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our meeting tonight. Above all, dear God, let us not focus on ourselves or worldly things, but let us focus solely upon you. In the name of your beloved Son, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Although we are not sure exactly when he was born, uh, the most likely uh, sometime towards the end of the first century, his teaching would have a tremendous impact in the early church, and he would influence many. Although most Christians have never heard his name, he was at one point one of the most infamous men alive. And even though many of the early church fathers would write against him and oust him as a heretic, sadly his teaching still manifests itself to this day, albeit through a much sneakier and more hidden means. I am referring to a man by the name of Marcion. Now who is Marcion? Marcion was a uh, sort of a Gnostic influence, a Docetic teacher in the second century who was excommunicated from the church in about A.D. 144, died sometime around 160, give or take. What is Marcion well known for? Well, he is most well known for making a gross and inappropriate distinction between the Old and New Testaments. Now, a fuller discussion of his theology would take up more time than I intend to give here tonight, but essentially, Marcion taught that the Old and the New Testaments were so different, so distinct from one another that there in reality existed two gods, the creator God of the Jewish people and of the Old Testament, and then the God who sent Jesus. Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was cruel, was harsh, was unloving, was full of violence but that the God of the New Testament was was good. He he was loving and and full of peace. Marcion would eventually reject the authority of the entire Old Testament and the vast majority of the New, accepting only ten of Paul's letters and an edited version of the Gospel of Luke. Now, none of 
Marcion's own writings exist uh, in our day, survive to this day, but we know about him because many of the early church fathers, such as Justin Martyr, Tertullian, wrote vehemently against him in opposition. And although Marcionism itself in its full extent is no longer seen as a threat to the Christian church, nevertheless, in the minds of many people alive today, there is this idea that the Old Testament God is mean and cruel, while the New Testament Jesus is soft and and tender and nice, when in reality, God was no less loving in the Old Testament and no less wrathful in the New. It's the same God, one God. And so this is something we seriously need to uh, contend with and we seriously need to address in our generation. Sadly, there has been a move to distance and to separate the Old Testament and its relevance from the church. We've seen Andy Stanley famously tell the church that we need to, quote, unhitch from the Old Testament, saying that our faith is not grounded in the Bible, but in the resurrection of Christ. Well, what I would like for Andy to tell me is how we can know anything significant about the resurrection or who Christ is, Christ is a biblical term, without the Bible itself. Now, this kind of error is obvious, but even still, many faithful, uh, believing, orthodox, evangelical Christians, sadly, just unfortunately, do not know how to handle their Old Testaments. Doug Wilson has humorously quipped, they love and revere it in the sense that they don't know what to do with it. It's like a picture of their great-grandmother. I know I'm supposed to honor this, but I don't know where to hang it. But you see, the, the fact of the matter is that the Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is theonustos, all Scripture is God-breathed. And if we are going to be followers of God, we must give careful attention to all that he has said, not just the bits and pieces that we like. Christ's sheep hear his voice, and thankfully Christ himself has spoken much about the Old Testament and the relevance thereof, and so we get the privilege tonight of of sitting at his feet, basically, and listening to what Jesus says on these important issues. We are, of course, continuing our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. We have opened up and we have expounded the Beatitudes, and we saw that when God puts His grace upon a man, how that grace changes him, then the subsequent impact he has on the world. And now at this point, Christ is going to be transitioning into the portion of His sermon in chapter 5 where He deals with the Torah, where He deals with the law and how it is that the scribes and Pharisees of his day, through their traditions, had greatly distorted the true and pure meaning of God's Word. And so we ask for the grace of God and for the blessing of His Spirit tonight as we set our hearts and our minds upon these important things. In verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. First, let us think about why it is that Jesus would make this statement. We recognize that Jesus' ministry was widely controversial in his day. Uh, Right now, I am teaching through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and we are only halfway through the book, 
and we've already encountered numerous instances in which the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. Then even in the Sermon on the Mount itself, Jesus intends to explicitly deal with and refute the perversion that the Jewish leaders had made of the Scriptures. And so what you have in Jesus' life is that against Jesus, the people who opposed Jesus were the most powerful, the most noble, the most respected, and the most influential religious authorities in his culture. So what Jesus wants to do when he says these words is he wants to demonstrate and he wants to explain very clearly that it is not Moses, it is not the Psalms, it is not the prophets that he is against. In other words, he is not against the Scriptures. He is not against the God of their fathers. He is not against the God of Abraham. He has not come to do away with God's Word and to overturn everything like that. If that were the case, no faithful, no devout man or woman of God would ever have went along with him. And so he wants to have it known at the very outset that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. The Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, was divided by the Jews into three categories. The Torah, the Nebaim, and the Ketubim, which is the law, the writings, and the prophets. And so by saying, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, as they were the beginning and the end, he refers to the entirety of the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. And unfortunately, a lot of times when people hear him say that, what they hear is, I have not come to abolish them, but to abolish them. Uh, now, now we, so we need to understand Jesus rightly. We need to understand Jesus correctly. So what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets? The word fulfill translates the, the Greek plerosai, and it has this, this sense of, of completion, filling up. Uh, Matthew Henry writes, if we consider the law as a vessel that had some water in it before, Jesus, he did not come to pour out the water, but rather to fill the vessel up to the brim. Or as a picture that is first rough drawn displays some outlines only of the piece intended, which afterwards are filled up. You see, the point is, Christ Jesus is not contrary to the Old Testament, as the ancient heretic Marcion and many others today would suggest. Truthfully, such an opinion is not only blasphemous, but it is idiotic. It is the exact opposite of what Christ himself teaches. So let me lay this down as a principle. If Jesus says that he is the fulfillment, the completion of the Old Testament, then you cannot truly know, you cannot truly understand Jesus apart from the Old Testament. The term Christ itself is an Old Testament term. It comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, which means the anointed one. Now, for more discussion of Jesus and his view on the Bible, I would recommend that you go to our website or our YouTube page or whatever, and you listen to my sermon that's titled Jesus in the Bible. I'm not trying to just like shamelessly promote myself, but there is some good information in there uh, to know exactly some more of what Jesus believed about the Bible. But for now, let me just raise something up. 
Uh, isn't it interesting that after Jesus' resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, he, he comes to some disciples and then, quote, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's all of the Old Testament scriptures, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then when you read the book of Acts of the apostles, how many instances do you have in which our Lord Jesus Christ's apostles are communicating who Christ is from the scriptures? Which, by the way, at that point, the New Testament had not been written. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas go to Berea to preach in the synagogue, the text says, quote, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now that right there, that's something that we need to think about. The Apostle Paul wrote the majority of our New Testament. And yet when he preaches about Christ in the book of Acts, the Jews are able to daily examine their Scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, to see if these things line up. So think about that. The Apostle Paul is preaching about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He's preaching on the resurrection of Christ. And what do the Jews look at to see if what Paul's saying is true? They look to the Hebrew Scriptures. They, so you are able to look, according to the, the, according to the Apostles, you are able to look at your Old Testament and there see Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that's something that we need to seriously uh, think about. And so don't get me wrong, I am not in any way, shape, or form trying to diminish the New Testament. The New Testament is, is wonderful. It's such a blessing that we have the New Testament. But what I'm saying is that you know, we see from the words of Jesus himself, as well as the words and actions of his apostles, that you have within the Old Testament the essence of the gospel itself. Augustine famously put it this way, The grace hid itself under a veil in the Old Testament, but it has been revealed in the New Testament. J.C. Ryle writes, The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in the blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. Now, as wonderful, as astonishing as it is to say and to see that Christ is the fulfillment of the Tanakh, we are not done with this until we answer this question, how exactly is He the fulfillment of the Tanakh? Well, there are a couple different things that we could look at. Uh, he fulfills them in a prophetic sense. Uh, he fulfills them in His own teaching, but chiefly, he fulfills the law and the prophets in his person and for men and women. I shall deal with each of these one at a time. So how does Christ fulfill the Old Testament prophetically? It is not surprising for any student of the Bible to hear me make reference to the many types, shadows, and, and direct prophecies about Jesus that we see in the Old Testament. From the very beginning, beginning Genesis 3.15, after the fall of our first parents into sin, God preaches the gospel to the serpent, saying, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman spoken of here is Christ. Now, in the book of Genesis, I would encourage you to to read it, uh, but in the book of Genesis, we get uh, a lot of discussion beginning in chapter 12 of whom we call the patriarchs. That is the fathers of our faith, the fathers of Israel. And, and so usually in the book of Genesis, you, see, you know, refer to the offspring of Abraham. Uh, you know, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Usually the man is the one who is the head of this offspring. But here in the garden, God says, the, talks about the woman's offspring. And I think that's really beautiful. And what I think that is a picture of is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And so then that's in the law. Well, look at the Psalms or the writings. In Psalm 22, what you have is a detailed, in-depth description of Roman crucifixion centuries before that practice was even put in place. You literally have the psalmist describing something that was not going to happen for hundreds of years after the fact. It, it is a, a beautiful prophecy. And you read the end of the psalm, and the psalm says that all the ends of the earth and all the families of the earth would come and would worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. That is an exact picture of what Jesus accomplished. And of course, no discussion of prophecy would be complete without making reference to Isaiah 53 itself, which is perhaps the most clear, just detailed, thorough explanation of the atonement of Jesus in the entire Bible. Now, there are so many others that we could look at, and we could be here all night, and that would be wonderful, and it would be a truly beautiful study. But for our purposes tonight, I simply want to show you that in all three sections of the Tanakh, you have Jesus Christ being prophesied. So then the second question, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament in his teaching? This will become more clear as we continue studying through Matthew chapter 5, but essentially Jesus is not going to alter, uh, but rather he is going to deepen. He is going to make more clear and more explicit the moral commands of the Old Testament law teaching that, for instance, it is not just the external act of adultery, which is sin, but the internal lust in the heart itself, which leads to adultery, that is sin. Sin begins in the heart. Now, this last point is the one that Jesus makes the most emphasis on in the Sermon on the Mount, and so we're going to get to these passages in chapter 5 when he deals with the perversions that the Pharisees had made through their tradition. But here's the thing, what Christ there expounds, what he clarifies, is the moral law of God. And there is a very particular way in which Christ fulfills this law of God and the moral law of God that we absolutely cannot pass over. But first, let us see how Jesus emphasizes this point even further. In verse 18, he says, for truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus makes reference to an iota and a dot. An iota refers to the smallest 
Hebrew letter, the Yod, and, and dot is in reference to the smallest stroke of a pen or stylus. And so what Jesus is saying, down to the very fine details of the Scriptures, Christ says none will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And as a, a preacher and as one who teaches Bible studies, let me use this opportunity to say that if Jesus can emphasize the smallest, most seemingly meaningless details of the text and say that until heaven and earth pass away, not even one small stroke of a stylus, think that the difference between a capital R and a capital P will pass away, then how greatly should you and I be concerned with even the smallest details of the Scriptures? This is why it is such a privilege for us to get together and to worship the Lord through the preaching and study of His Word. And so then down to the tiniest little detail, Jesus says it will not pass away until all is accomplished. The all here refers to the law and the prophets themselves until all those things are filled up, until they're completed, until they're accomplished, they will not pass away. And of course, here we see yet again a tension between, we've talked about this before, the, the now and the not yet. For there is a certain sense in which Jesus has come and He has fulfilled and He has accomplished the law. But yet I would also say there is a sense in which He is still currently, present tense, fulfilling and accomplishing the law. Now to be able to understand this, we need to consider the question, why was the law given in the first place? But what we're asking here is what was God's intention? What is God's purpose forgiving the law at all? Uh, the beautiful thing is the Bible actually answers these questions for us. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, in the context of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is referring to the promise God made with Abraham, who was Abram at the time, and he identifies the one singular offspring as Christ. Now, the covenant that God had made with Abraham was a promise. God, He was going to bring these things to pass. And any person would find themselves an inheritor of that promise by faith. We read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so then the law was not given as a means by which the, the bless, someone inherits the blessings that were promised. But in verse 19, Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions, because of sin. And then in verse 24, Paul says that the law was our guardian until Christ came. That's the ESV's translation. And so you see, what Paul is saying is that the law had a specific purpose in anticipating Christ. As John Calvin wrote on why the law was given, he says, to keep them in suspense until his advent, to inflame their desire and confirm their expectation. So then the ESV says that Paul, you know, Paul uses the term guardian to refer to the law. So, so how is the law a guardian? Well, the Greek term there is pedagogos, and it has the sense of keeping and, and protecting 
as we would normally think a guardian would do, but it even carries with it the deeper sense of like a guide or, or teacher or an instructor. Uh, the King James translates that the law was our schoolmaster. And so therefore the law of God has a teaching element to it. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so in Reformed theology as articulated by Calvin, we call this the first use of the law. The first use of the law is to help you understand that you are a sinner. And I think that as we go through chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, this will become more and more clear. But for now, let me use the text in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul writes, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I have not, would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And so you see, this is the first use of the law then to show you without a doubt according to a fixed written standard that you are a sinner. Now someone might say, all right, I, I guess I am a sinner. So what? What does it matter? Well, what you also find in the law is not only those moral commands, think the, the thou shalt nots, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt honor thy mother and father, those types of things, which every human being breaks those laws. But you will also find what it is that God requires, what it is that God demands for those transgressions, for those sins. For example, in Leviticus chapter 16, we read about Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippurim, the Day of Atonements. And what this was, was that under the Mosaic Covenant, Every year in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, the high priest was to go into the most holy place in the tabernacle and there offer animal sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the congregation of the people of Israel. And you see, according to Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So you see, what am I trying to communicate here? Well, essentially, it is that by means of these animal sacrifices, what the law teaches is that not only are we sinners, breakers of the law, but that what God requires, what God demands of those sins is the giving of life. The animal sacrifices represent you, you kill and you give the life in order to atone or cleanse men from their sins. Now here's the thing about those animal sacrifices. They were made year after year after year after year after year. You say they were not truly a perfect sacrifice. As Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, the sacrifices had to be continually made, and each time the high priest first had to offer up a sacrifice for himself and for his own family's sins, since like the rest of the fellow creatures, he too was a sinner. You see, he wasn't a perfect high priest. Now, Getting back to this idea of Christ as the fulfillment of the law. The Jewish people live for over a thousand years under the law of Moses with these continual sacrifices, a seemingly eternal reminder of their sins. 
But remember, the intention of all of this was to be a guardian to keep them and also a schoolmaster to keep them and instruct them until the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in Galatians 4.4, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I emphasize that phrase, born under the law. To me, this has got to be one of the most astonishing, one of the most beautiful incomprehensible statements in the entire Bible. You see, we talk a lot about how great was the condescension that the eternal Son of God would enter into time and take on human flesh, but I think it is a peculiarly condescending thing for him also to place himself underneath the very law he had given. Do you you think about that? That is, that is amazing to me. That is, that is so beautiful that he would do that. And, and I cannot even describe that for you. But that's what he did. He was born under the law. He literally held himself subject to his own law. Now, it is in this thing right here that we see a further way in which Christ fulfilled the law. As one scholar wrote, the only thing Christ added to the law was that he actually kept it. You see, by becoming truly a man, something that Marcion, by the way, uh, who we talked about earlier, denied, he only thought that Jesus sort of like pretended to, to be a man, that he wasn't truly a man, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the truth here. Jesus put himself in the unique position of being the only person truly capable of fulfilling the law in the sense of actually obeying it. You see, Jesus was tempted as we ourselves are tempted, but here's the difference. He is without sin. We are not without sin. We are led astray so often frequently by our own flesh. I was having a conversation with someone this morning, and I said, you know, I'm not skilled at many things. I'm not very good at a lot. I'm not very talented, but I am good at this one thing, sinning. But you see, Jesus is even better at saving, and I'm going to explain that too. You see, we are often so just led astray by our own flesh. In our hearts, we, we desire evil, and even this desire itself is sin. But Jesus was not even guilty of this because desire to sin never even entered his bosom. Perfect, holy, and blameless is he. And this is something very crucial and very important to understand, and I want everyone to pay very close attention to this next phrase. If Jesus was a sinner, all of us are going to hell. If Jesus was a sinner, all of us are going to hell. Therefore, it is an essential truth of the Christian faith that Jesus is not a sinner. He perfectly fulfills the law by actively obeying it. He actually keeps the commandments. And the Bible identifies Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so here is where we see the relevancy of all these things that I'm tying together. Earlier, when we talked about the Levitical high priest, 
We mentioned that he first had to offer up a sacrifice for his own sin before he could offer a sacrifice for anyone else. And that's because the high priest himself was a sinner. But Jesus, he's a greater high priest, after, one after the order of Melchizedek. And so he does not have to first offer up sins for his own sacrifices, but what he does is he goes to the cross. He passively endured what it is that the law requires for sin, and what does the law require for sin? A blood sacrifice, the giving of life. He then, not only as the sacrifice, but as the high priest, enters into the most holy place, though not one made with hands, and unlike the Aaronic priest, he does not not offer up an atonement for his own sin, since no such sin existed, and he also did not offer up a mere goat or a bull, but he offers the pure, undefiled lamb of God whose fleece was white as snow, offering up as both the high priest and the sacrifice the giving of his own blood. As it says all the way back in Leviticus 17.11, it is the blood that makes atonement by life. And thus Jesus becomes not only our prophet and not only our king, but our priest as well, securing for all those who would believe in him an eternal redemption. Not just making eternal redemption possible, if we add our own works or if we add our own free will decisions to it or anything like that, but he perfectly secures our eternal redemption according to Hebrews 10:12. And Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He holds his priesthood forever. No one takes it away from him. All of the Aaronic priests, the priests of the Old Testament, they died. They died because they were men and they were sinners. Jesus does not. They died and someone else had to take their place. Jesus, he goes and he gives his own life on the cross. No one takes it from him. And he raises himself from the dead. And he lives forever. And as Hebrews 7, 24 to 25 says, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Sometimes people wonder whether or not it's possible to lose your salvation. My response to that is this. Is it possible for God to die? Well, no. God can't die. Then I respond, neither is it possible for one of the elect to ever fall away from the faith and perish because Jesus lives forever to intercede for the ones for whom he gave his life. His is a perfect atonement. And therefore, do not entrust your soul to the fleeting things of this world. Do not entrust yourself to the many false teachers and the many false faiths the devil continues to assault the world with. In Roman Catholicism, they teach that at the Mass, the bread and the wine is transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ, and then the Roman Catholic priest represents the sacrifice of Christ continually. But that's not what my Bible says. Jesus makes the perfect sacrifice that is once and for all. Nothing needs to be added to it. It is perfect. And all those who believe in him, that sacrifice was made for them. And so you can have freedom. You can have eternal life. You can have joy. You can have peace by believing in Jesus Christ. 
You may say, well, Logan, I'm not a part of any false religious system. I say that's all very well and good, but let me ask you something and ask yourself this too. What are you trusting in? Are you relying upon your own good works? Are you relying upon your own righteousness? Are you relying upon your own morality that you think you can appease God and earn His favor? Do you think that you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person? If that's why you think you're going to heaven, you're wrong. The only people who are going to heaven are those who have the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. If you're wrong about that, you're dead wrong. Because you will die. A road of denying Christ leads to death, and that is death eternally. Have you not read the law that was given to Moses? What does God require for the transgression of His commandments? What does God require for sin? A blood sacrifice. Either Christ is going to give His blood for your sins or you'll have to give your own life. And so all of us, we've all broken these commandments. So look into your heart. See there, find all of the selfishness, all of the hatred, all of the anger, all of the lust, all of the greed, all of the envy, all of the pride, all those moments when you did not fully love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength as you ought to. And then look at what the law requires for your sins. It requires a blood sacrifice, the giving of life for the atonement of sins. Now, should the Holy Spirit be inspiring this within you, you will ask the question, where can I find a sacrifice that shall appease a holy God? Surely a perfect God must require no less than a perfect sacrifice. A half a sacrifice will not do. His wrath must be perfectly quenched, lest God be found to be not perfect. And I tell you this day, rejoice and be glad. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, no less, to redeem those who were under the law. He does it for us so that we might receive adoption as sons. This right here, my friends, my loved ones, and even my enemies, if you're still listening, this is how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in the purest, most undefiled, truest sense. Is it not amazing when we look at our Bibles how much spiritual power and unity there is? Surely this book could have been written by none other than God himself. Sometimes people want to talk about evidence for the Bible. What's the best evidence that the Bible is true? The Bible itself. Look at it. It is powerful. It is life-changing. It is redeeming. It gives peace. It gives joy. It gives satisfaction. And by the eyes of faith, you too will see this power. The point is that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is a book that contains power beyond description. But let us also remember, the chief purpose of the Bible is to point us to Christ. In the Old Testament, we, we, have, we, have a, we had a guardian or a guide until Christ came. Yet in the New Testament, we have the recording of the coming of Christ. And all in all, the, the, the whole entire thing is to get you to look at Christ and to trust Him and to love Him. If your interactions with the Scriptures do not lead you to behold Christ, then you are not doing it right. 
It's, it's one thing to have a head full of divinity and a head full of theological knowledge, but if that head is not on the shoulders of someone who has a heart in their chest that is filled with sweet affection for Jesus Christ, then it is all vanity. Some people think that the Bible is primarily some sort of self-help book, like I'm supposed to sit down with my coffee in the morning and, and read my Bible and get you know, motivated for my day. And don't get me wrong, the Bible is very con- encouraging and we find strength in the Word of God. But if, if you only look at the Scriptures in that way, that too is vanity. You see, we must look at the Bible in this way, as a window into heaven that shows us the very face of Jesus Christ. That's who we're looking for. We are looking for Him. And sometimes people want to talk about feeling the presence of God. And what I always say is this, my most intimate interactions with the Lord are when I am most intimately interacting with His Word. Therefore, when all is said and done, Jesus is in every sense the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He was the one they wrote about. He was the one they prophesied about. The law was given to prepare the world for Christ. But Christ fulfilled the law in a very special sense in His person. And I'd like to remind us all of what He says in Matthew 5, verse 18. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see, I really do believe that Jesus Christ is continuing His fulfillment of the law until this very day. And therefore, the Scriptures remain relevant. Every time a sinner is justified with the righteousness of Christ, Christ fulfills the law in that person by giving them faith in the true meaning of that law. And and now the law is written on their hearts, and they use it, this is the third use of the law, as a standard by which to conform their life to that they may please and honor God. Yet He also fulfills the law in the reprobate as well, by exacting upon them the punishments that the law requires. But in all that he does, whether it be for your benefit, for your judgment, Christ is fulfilling the law. That's what the law was there for all along. And the Old Testament promises that he will have all of his enemies made a footstool for his feet. And every year, as he builds and establishes His kingdom until all is said and done, He will continue to fulfill that law. The chief point our Lord is making is that though the whole thing is about Him, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, it is the most stupendous claim ever made. That being said, won't you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your law. God, let us behold your Son through the power of your word. Let us seek to obey the law of which he is the fulfillment. Dear God, let us honor and please you in all that we do. It is in the name of this beloved Son of yours we pray. Amen.